That concludes general questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions. And at question number one, I call Douglas Ross. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. This week, the Government rejected amendments to the Gender Recognition Reform Bill that would have stopped those awaiting trial for a sexual offence from changing gender. The amendment from Michelle Thompson, supported by Russell Finlay, would have prevented the situation where a survivor of rape would have to refer to their rapist as she. This amendment was not directed at trans people. It would not limit trans rights. It was solely intended to stop male criminals from inflicting more trauma on their victims. Michelle Thompson said in this chamber on Tuesday that leaving this as a possibility risked handing power to abusers. She said that the government is choosing to put the rights of alleged criminals over the rights of victims. The government stopped that amendment by a single vote. The First Minister's own vote means that a man standing trial for rape can claim they're a woman and force a victim to call them she. Why did the First Minister vote for this? First Minister. Presiding officer, where amendments uh, were rejected over the course of the last two days, it was because a majority in this parliament, having listened carefully and respectfully to the arguments, uh, decided that for a variety of reasons, uh, those amendments uh, were not uh, appropriate and parliament has uh, gone through that process uh, over the past two days, as is right and proper. Um, over the course of the last two days, uh, we have heard set out in this chamber uh, many of the different ways uh, in which predatory men can abuse women. Uh, my argument is not, and it has never been and never will be, uh, that these are not very real ways in which predatory men abuse uh, women. Uh, my argument is that none uh, of these ways are created by this bill, yeah. um, and nor uh, would it be the case that any of these ways are addressed by denying rights to trans yeah. uh, people. Uh, the fact of the matter is, a man who wants to abuse a woman, um, even a man who wants to masquerade as a woman in order to do so, does not need a gender recognition certificate to do that, um, and nor does having a gender recognition certificate uh, give that man any more uh, ability or rights uh, to do that uh, than is currently the case. What we must focus on uh, are the men who abuse women, the predatory and abusive men who do that, um, and this government always will in a range of different ways. Uh, where amendments were rejected over the course of the last two days, it was often the case uh, that that was because there were alternative amendments uh, that were passed to strengthen safeguards in this bill, but amendments that were compliant in the view of the government with ECHR and uh, competence issues uh, in a way that some of those rejected were not. So, for example, um, in terms of sex offenders, amendments by Shona Robinson and Gillian Martin uh, Briefly, were agreed please, uh, by Parliament. So, these have been serious issues, seriously considered by this Parliament, as is right and proper. Douglas Ross. Well, we supported those amendments, but they were weaker than the amendment from Michelle Thompson. Roddy Dunlop the Dean of the Faculty of Advocates in Scotland said of Gillian Martin's amendment, it will not prevent harm, 
it will reduce the risk of harm. And on ECHR, Brodie Dunlop also said on that vote, I can conceive of no sensible basis on which this amendment might be rejected. That's from the, faculty, the head of the Faculty of Advocates in Scotland. But the First Minister's point here seems to be that this won't happen, that there's no chance that a violent, predatory male will ever try to exploit loopholes to attack or further traumatise women. But what if that does happen? Why would any of us leave the possibility that that could happen? One offence like that is one too many. Stopping an accused sex offender from changing gender is common sense. What is it that the First Minister and half of this Parliament thought was right to leave open the chance that that could happen? First Minister. Well, firstly, uh, it is not my position and I didn't say and have never said that predatory men uh, will not seek to abuse women. My argument is that it is not this bill that creates the opportunities for yeah. them to do so. These opportunities, unfortunately, uh, exist already and it's those that we have to tackle. Nor would not passing this bill remove the opportunities for predatory men to seek to do that. And the reasons for the rejection of these particular amendments um, and the alternative amendments that were put forward have been set out to this Parliament over the course of the debate in the last two days and a majority in, in the Parliament has taken a decision. That's how our parliamentary democracy operates. Uh, now, let me set out again exactly uh, what the position as a result of those amendments uh, that were accepted is. Uh, and let me firstly remind the Chamber that we have in place already uh, current provisions for the management of sex offenders that are robust. Um, but we have already, indeed before stage three, uh, given the commitment to expand the reporting requirements uh, to include notification about an application uh, for gender recognition. And the amendments by Shona Robinson and by Gillian Martin, and of course agreed by a majority of this parliament at stage three further strengthen that. So these will mean that no further action can be taken on a GRC application where the police have applied for a sexual offences prevention order, sexual harm prevention order or sexual risk order that would prevent a GRC application. Um, and it's also my final point, presiding officer, these are safeguards uh, in this legislation that don't exist in the current gender recognition legislation. Because an important point that is often lost in this debate, because when you listen to this debate, it sometimes sounds as if this bill is you know, either inventing trans people or creating for the first time a process by which somebody can legally change their gender. It is not that process exists. And these safeguards that I have just set out don't exist in the current law, but they will exist in this new legislation. The First Minister speaks about majority votes, but we know on Michelle Thompson's amendment it came down to just one vote. And at First Minister's questions, I'm asking the First Minister about her one vote, because that amendment simply asked to pause the period that people can apply to uh, have their gender changed if they are on trial for such serious offences. What was the problem with just pausing that opportunity for someone when they are on trial for such a serious offence? And it seems to be the First Minister has not taken the people of Scotland with her on these issues. Polling shows that a majority of Scots are firmly against key parts of this bill. 
A majority oppose reducing the time applicants must have lived in their acquired gender from two years to six months. And a majority oppose removing the requirement for a doctor's diagnosis of gender dysphoria. That includes a majority of Conservative voters, but crucially it also includes a majority of Liberal Democrat voters, mm -hmm. Labour voters and SNP voters. Lowering the age threshold for a gender recognition certificate was the most opposed aspect of this bill. Two-thirds were against it. And again, this included 63% of SNP voters, 67% of Labour voters and 75% of Liberal Democrats. Despite this, all three parties are backing the bill today. So why does the First Minister and her allies in this chamber believe they know better than the public? First Minister, um, we could all point to different polls on this issue. I could point to polls showing very strong support for uh, what this bill is doing, including very strong support amongst uh, women across this country. But fundamentally, and perhaps this is a point of agreement uh, with Douglas Ross, all of us are elected to this parliament and all of us have a very serious responsibility to make decisions and to be accountable for those decisions. Uh, at stage one, we will take the stage three uh, vote on this bill later this afternoon. But at stage one, uh, this bill was supported by members across every party in this chamber, including uh, some members uh, of Douglas Ross's party and all of us will be accountable for the decisions we take on this bill as we are accountable for all the decisions we take here. That is democracy and I uh, stand by the decisions I take and I will be accountable uh, and I will set out the reasons for my decisions uh, to people across Scotland uh, on this and on every other issue. Removing the need for medical diagnosis uh, for a trans person who wants to legally change their gender is actually one of the purposes of this legislation because the need for that is one of the most uh, intrusive, traumatic and dehumanising parts of the current system. And I believe I've been, you know, and uh, as a woman, uh, I know very much what it is like to live with the fear at times uh, of potential violence from uh, men. I'm a feminist, I will argue for women's rights, I will do everything I can to protect women's rights for as long as I live. But I also think it's an important part of my responsibility to make life a little bit easier for stigmatised minorities yeah, yeah. in our country, yeah, to make their lives absolutely. a bit better and to remove some of the trauma uh, that they live with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think it is important to do that for the tiny minority of trans people uh, in our society. And I will never apologise for trying to spread equality, not reduce it uh, in our country. <laughs> Finally, presiding officer. Briefly, First Minister. To, finally, to come back to uh, the, the starting uh, question uh, from Douglas Ross in, in that latest question. The reasons for not accepting Michelle Thompson and Russell Finlay's uh, amendments yesterday were set out at length by Shona Robison because we consider, having carefully considered them, that they would not have been compatible uh, with the European Convention on Human Rights, which all of our legislation has to be and therefore uh, would have potentially compromised uh, the bill. And therefore, we sought an alternative way of achieving the same objectives. And that is what I have set out already. Douglas Ross. Let's be very clear. We supported uh, Gillian Martin's amendment, but it was weaker. It is weaker than Michelle Thompson's. And we had an opportunity in this parliament and the First Minister's vote could have made a difference to strengthen that element. Uh, but let's also be clear that the public are not against improvements to support trans people. Yeah. They are against this bill. The problem is not reform. 
The problem is the First Minister's reforms. While there may be a majority in this chamber later today to support this legislation, a majority of the public oppose the bill, including most SNP, Labour and Liberal Democrat voters. This bill reduces women's rights and potentially risks women's safety. But it doesn't need to be this way. So let me ask the First Minister and all the Labour, Liberal Democrat and SNP members who support it, shouldn't they take the time to get this right instead of charging ahead with a bill that the people of Scotland do not support? First Minister. This is a bill that has been six years in the making. There have been two uh, full consultations. Um, today it will be the culmination of a, a full uh, and robust legislative process. In the last two days alone, we've had what, presiding officer, I think around 20 hours of debate on amendments. This is possibly the most scrutinised piece of legislation in the history of this parliament. The issue here, presiding officer, and I say this entirely respectfully, is not the lack of scrutiny. It is that the majority in this parliament, made up of members from all parties, including uh, members in Douglas Ross's party, have respectfully disagreed with the arguments the Tories uh, have put forward. And many of these arguments uh, have been completely unrelated yep. to the purpose and effect right. of this bill. That is the reality. Now, Douglas Ross says he's not opposed to reform, he's just opposed to this bill. Well, I've listened very carefully, uh, not just in the last two days, but throughout this debate. I have not heard, I don't think, uh, from Douglas Ross at any time any explanation or any sense of what form of bill he would have been prepared to support. Because I suspect Douglas Ross would have voted against this bill regardless of what amendments had been proposed to it. Now, that is his right, presiding officer. I've heard, I think, and I'll be corrected if I'm wrong about this, but I think I've heard Douglas Ross uh, say that in the past, had he been in this parliament when we had considered equal marriage, he would have voted against that, but has since changed his mind all of us have to consider these things carefully. Um, I have thought very, very, very deeply about all of these issues for a long time, and I will be accountable for the decisions I make on this bill in this parliament. I will always stand up for women's rights, uh, but I am proud of the fact that I hope this afternoon parliament will vote for a piece of legislation that will make the lives of trans people in this country that little bit better and easier. And I think that's actually something to be proud of. Question number two, Anna Sarwar. Presenting officer, on this last day of business, can I start by wishing you and members across this chamber a very Merry Christmas, and in particular to the Parliament staff and all of our staff. Eh, we wish them all the best for the new year. <laughs> over Christmas, thousands of NHS staff will be working when most of us will be spending time with our family and friends. They all deserve our thanks for the work they are doing to keep the NHS going over the winter and indeed all year round. But our health service heroes don't just deserve our thanks, they deserve better pay and conditions too. So will the First Minister commit to get back round the table with the Royal College of Nurses, the Royal College of Midwives and the GMB to listen to their concerns, act on them and avoid strikes next year? First Minister. 
I'll come directly to that point in a second, because it is one um, I take very seriously and the Government is and will continue to work very hard on. But can I also take the opportunity, President Officer, to wish you, uh, members across the Chamber uh, and all of our staff, a, a very happy Christmas. Can I take the opportunity, particularly uh, as we break for Christmas this year, to thank the staff of this Parliament for the way in which they have gone above and beyond to support us in our responsibilities over the course of this week. We're deeply grateful to each and every one of you. And can I also take the opportunity to thank every single uh, man and woman who works across our health and care services. Uh, we do that every year, uh, but it is more important and more appropriate this year than it has ever been before. Um, in direct uh, answer to Anna Sarwar's question, the Health Secretary will be meeting with trade unions tomorrow. Um, I think he was originally uh, supposed to do that this afternoon, but parliamentary business has uh, intervened. Uh, he will do that tomorrow. Uh, because just as has been the case up until now, we will do everything we can uh, to avoid industrial action in our National Health Service. And we have, unlike England, Wales and Northern Ireland, we have so far avoided industrial action in our health service. Uh, and we'll do that because we want to obviously avoid uh, the disruption that that will bring uh, to patients across the country. But we also want to do that because we value those who work in our National Health Service. And I want to make sure they get the best possible pay rise that we can give them. We have maximised what we can do within this financial year. Uh, so compared to England, where there is a Conservative government, Wales, where there is a Labour uh, government and the Health Service Agenda for Change staff have been offered an average of 4.5%, in Scotland, uh, the offer is 7.5% on average. That is a sign of how deeply we value our healthcare workers and we will continue to have discussions, meaningful uh, discussions, to do everything possible to reward them appropriately and to avoid any disruption in our health service. I welcome that the Health Secretary will be meeting with the unions tomorrow, and I sincerely hope that we can find an agreement to get through this crisis. But these trade unions are not just striking about pay. They are warning about patient safety and conditions in our hospitals. More than a year ago, the Health Secretary announced a catch-up plan for our NHS, but things are getting worse for patients. In August 2021, when the catch-up plan was announced, 76 per cent of people going to A&E were seen within four hours. That has now fallen to 62%. In July to September 2021, 83% of people were being seen within the 62-day standard for cancer treatment. That has now fallen to 74.7%. And when the catch-up plan was launched, 64% of patients were being seen within the legally binding 12-week treatment time guarantee. That has now fallen to 56%. Patients and staff are crying out for this government to get a grip. The catch-up plan has failed. Why is the government persisting with this failing plan, and when will they bring forward a new one? First Minister. Firstly, Presiding Officer, just to complete uh, my answer on pay and to reiterate uh, that this government will continue uh, to make every effort to avoid industrial action. Uh, we are so far the only part of the UK that has avoided industrial action. And uh, what I'm about to say is not intended as a criticism of the government in Wales, because I know how difficult it is, uh, because they are working within the same constraints uh, as we are, uh, constraints imposed upon us by the UK government. Uh, but we have seen industrial action in Wales, where Labour are in government, because there hasn't been uh, the same negotiations that led to a higher uh, pay offer uh, than has been the case elsewhere in the UK. So I think 
The reason I say that is because people should take that as a very clear signal uh, that we will do everything within our power and resources, and those resources uh, this year uh, are expended, uh, but we will continue to do everything we can to avoid uh, industrial action. And part of the offer to NHS workers includes uh, offers around non-pay elements, um, and we will continue to explore how far we can go there uh, as well. On the, the catch-up plan, uh, of course, uh, since the catch-up plan uh, was published, we've had further uh, waves of COVID. Uh, the pressures on our NHS have increased, um, and we have seen waiting times deteriorate as a result of that uh, in many respects. That said, uh, we are seeing progress in reducing the numbers uh, who are waiting longest. So if we look at inpatient daycare treatment, uh, the longest uh, waits have been reduced by uh, almost uh, a quarter. Uh, we're seeing progress in CAMS waiting times. We covered that in some detail, I think, last week, presiding officer. These are the toughest of times for our health service. As we go into this festive period, not just uh, COVID, uh, but flu, other respiratory illnesses, um, and of course, cold weather uh, are all posing Briefly, significant challenges. Our job is to continue to support the health service, and that is exactly what we will do. Anna Sarwar. The fact that the First Minister cannot escape from is that performance is getting worse, not better, since the catch-up plan. And failures have consequences. Patients are being asked to accept the unacceptable, and staff are being asked to do the impossible. And lives are being lost. On nearly every measure, things are worse than when the Health Secretary launched the catch-up plan. So let's look at this government's report card against their own performance standards. A&E waiting times failed. Delayed discharge failed. CAMS waiting times failed. 12-week first outpatient appointment failed. Eight weeks referral to treatment failed. Cancer treatment times failed. Detect cancer early failed. GP waits failed. Treatment time guarantee failed. When will the First Minister wake up and realise that when it comes to the National Health Service that this First Minister and this Health Secretary have failed? First Minister. Soundbites in full anger will not uh, address the challenges in, in the health service. Patients and the public have a right uh, to be angry and frustrated right now, but they also have a right to expect a government that is addressing these issues. Uh, I am not and haven't stood here um, and suggested uh, that there are not significant and over recent months increasing challenges on the NHS and therefore on the uh, performance measures that we have in the National Health Service. We are seeing that across uh, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, health services across the world as the uh, continuing impact of the pandemic and the other pressures on our NHS right now uh, mounts. Uh, that's why we are increasing investment beyond any consequential funding next year for the NHS, a billion pounds extra, asking those who earn the most in this country to pay a bit more in tax so that we can give more resources to our National Health Service. We're continuing to support uh, record uh, recruitment and numbers of staff in the National Health Service, and we are starting to see progress on the longest waits. Uh, what is happening here is that demand is going up. In many of these performance indicators, the NHS is treating more patients, yeah. but there are more patients coming forward for treatment. Uh, so nobody uh, knows better than I do, the Health Secretary, the government, uh, the challenges that we face here, which is why we remain focused on supporting our NHS through these challenges in the various ways that I've set out. Question number three, Ariane Burgess. To ask the First Minister what actions the Scottish Government will take forward as a result of COP15, the 15th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Convention 
on biological diversity. First Minister. I welcome the outcome reached at COP uh, and of course that now must be followed up by all parties and at all levels with immediate and urgent plans for implementation. Our draft biodiversity strategy which was published last week sets out how the Scottish Government will do this. It establishes our long-term ambition and vision for a nature positive future and sets out some of the immediate actions we will take to halt nature loss by 2030. I'm also proud that the Edinburgh process which was led by the Scottish Government on behalf of the Convention on Biological Diversity culminated at COP15 with over 300 subnational, local and regional governments joining our call for action. The resulting plan of action on subnational governments was adopted as part of the framework agreed in Montreal this week. Ariane Burgess. I thank the First Minister for her answer. It's great to see Scotland playing an influential role on the world stage and supporting global progress to tackle the nature emergency. The Montreal Agreement could be a turning point in our fight to protect and restore our natural environment, to stop the declines and extinctions and protect the life support systems we all depend on. But any agreement is only worth the actions it results in. Scotland can help make the new global diversity framework a success by moving quickly to implement it. And that means big change to how our land and seas are managed and looked after for current and future generations. One of the key actions in the new Question, framework please, is Ms. to protect 30% of our land and seas by 2030. But, however, recent reports have shown that many seas are in, in Scotland are already protected, are in poor condition. Can the First Minister confirm that as part of delivering 30 by 30 in Scotland, the level of protection will be improved and nature recovery will be supported in these important places? First Minister. Um, well, that was a really important question, uh, not just in the here and now, but for the future uh, of our nature, indeed for the future of, of the planet. Um, I think it was really good to see the headline target to protect at least 30% of the world's land and sea by 2030 in the new global framework. And of course, we are committed to implementing this in Scotland. Uh, let me uh, reiterate that we are committed to the expansion and improvement of areas managed for nature and our 30 by 30 programme will promote ecological restoration and safeguard at a scale never uh, seen before in Scotland. Uh, while almost 80% of uh, features at protected areas are in favourable or recovering condition uh, and the long-term trend is one of improvement, I agree that we can and must do more. Uh, we're committed to working at a landscape scale and taking a collaborative approach to tackle the negative pressures on protected areas and we're currently working with Nature Scott to take forward a co-design process with stakeholders to develop a framework through which our 30 by 30 commitment will be delivered. Liam Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Crucial to biodiversity is peatland restoration and the Climate Change Committee recommends restoring 45,000 hectares per year by 2022. The government's target was a mere 20,000 hectares. However, in 2020-21, this government restored 8,000 hectares, and it is reported that 80% of Scotland's peatlands are degraded. Now, the First Minister said earlier that the biodiversity strategy sets out actions the government will take. So what actions is the government taking right now to restore these peatlands, and in which year will she meet the restoration target. First Minister. We are, as a government, we're investing uh, records amounts and we're committed to 
record investments in peatland uh, restoration. I'm happy to uh, write to the member uh, with more uh, details of the, the timescales uh, and our expectations around that. Uh, but I think we are recognised uh, as really setting the pace in some of this. And of course, peatland restoration is one of the, the, key, the key levers uh, and the key tools we have at our disposal. The final thing I would say, though, presiding officer, and I think it's, it's something for all of us, but particularly those in government, uh, to reflect on very seriously. Across all of these areas, no government anywhere is yet doing enough uh, or doing as much as we need to do. So therefore, it's really important that we continue to challenge ourselves all of the time and we continue to be challenged. Uh, so I actually welcome uh, this line of questioning um, and want to see uh, the maximum possible challenge on this government to make sure that we are not just setting the targets, but making the investments uh, and taking the actions to meet those targets, because there are a few more important areas of work for any government uh, anywhere on the planet right now. Question number four, Fergus Ewing. Uh, Presiding officer, I, I apologise for not being in my space from the outset at First Minister's questions. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will set a clear ambition in its planned energy strategy for delivery of four to six gigawatts of solar power by 2030. First Minister. Energy generated from uh, solar uh, can, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, make a very significant contribution uh, both to the decarbonisation of our energy supply, but also to the just transition that we need to make to a net zero emissions society by 2045. Our draft energy strategy and just transition plan uh, will be published, uh, I can tell the Chamber, very early in January when we return from uh, the recess, and it will contain a clear vision for the future development of solar energy. Uh, this will include the action the Scottish Government is taking to remove barriers to solar deployment, um, and through the consultation we will also seek views and evidence on uh, whether and also at what level a deployment ambition uh, should be set. It's vital that we ensure any deployment ambition is appropriate, uh, stretching but also achievable, and I would encourage uh, all stakeholders to engage with the draft vision and consultation process. Fergus Ewing. The, the answer, uh, your answer, First Minister, will be received uh, uh, very warmly by those across all parties in this chamber that support developing Scotland's solar potential. So I'm very grateful for that. I wonder if I can just pursue one aspect, however, and that is that in the planning system and the national planning framework, precedence is given to those forms of renewable energy where there is a clear identified ambition and target. No target, little development. The opportunity may slip through our fingers like mercury. So in order to achieve the enormous potential that solar energy can contribute to our uh, transition to a clean uh, electricity uh, system of generation, will the First Minister bear this point in mind so that precedence is given to solar power by having a very clear, practical, deliverable, achievable target? First Minister. 
Um, I, I think uh, I, I'm sure I know Fergus Ewing uh, would have been listening very carefully to what I said. I, I think without you know, going further before we've published the consultation, uh, what I was very clearly indicating in talking about consulting on whether and at what level uh, we set a deployment ambition, that I do recognise the importance uh, for the reason Fergus Ewing set out, but for other reasons as well, not least activating a supply chain uh, and benefiting the economy. There is uh, an importance attached to uh, targets. That's why we already have uh, targets for offshore and onshore wind, for hydrogen, for example. So I hope uh, Fergus Ewan will take that uh, positively. Um, and the final thing I would say, which he has already alluded to, and, and this is a reason for consulting on this, it's important, uh, and you know, go back to the previous question here, it's important not just that we set a target, but that we make sure that is both stretching and achievable. So the consultation is an important part of this process, which is why I would encourage all those with an interest to take part in it. Question number five, Maurice Golden. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to reported warnings that the implementation of the deposit return scheme will be, and I quote, ruinous for consumers and businesses. First Minister. Well, I, I, don't, I don't agree uh, with that. The deposit return scheme will be a major part of our efforts to reduce litter, cut emissions and build a more circular economy. Uh, good progress is being made by industry ahead of the scheme's introduction in August 2023, and that indeed is reflected in the most recent Gateway Review, which noted that good progress has been made and that successful delivery of the scheme is uh, now achievable. Uh, I'm a, we are very aware of business concerns and some outstanding issues, and we take these seriously. That's why we've committed to a pragmatic approach to implementation and are taking action to help make the scheme more efficient and to reduce costs. Last week, for example, fees for drinks producers were substantially reduced by the scheme administrator and we committed to lay regulations so that only the largest grocery retailers will be obliged initially to provide a take-back service for online and distance sales. Maurice Golden. Uh, I thank the First Minister for that answer. The deposit return scheme has been scaled back, but we all want it to, to succeed. But understandably, businesses are worried about the potential for it to go wrong. That worry is fuelled by the confusion, secrecy and lack of information that surrounds the scheme. I know none of us wants that, and we must make sure the scheme is more transparent to increase confidence in it. The Scottish Government has the power to make the scheme administrator subject to freedom of information requests. Will the First Minister do that? Yeah. First Minister. I will give consideration to uh, any request and any suggestion that is made in the Chamber, so I will take uh, that away and uh, give that consideration and, and discuss that with colleagues. Uh, I do believe, though, uh, there is transparency around the work that has been done uh, around the scheme. Um, you know, we had a review carried out just in October, concluding uh, that the programme has gained increased momentum, is an improved position, uh, and that Go Live date in August is, is feasible. Um, I think that's testament to the efforts being made by industry, by Circularity Scotland, uh, working together to ensure that the scheme is implemented. Uh, last week, uh, the Minister wrote to the committee setting out the further steps uh, that we are taking, listening to the concerns of industry, uh, to make the scheme more efficient and to reduce costs. Uh, so the day one uh, payments are, are being reduced. 
Uh, last week, uh, we published new producer fees, or rather, Circularity Scotland published new producer fees that are lower uh, than previously uh, indicated, um, and other uh, changes are being made to try to take account of the concerns of industry. So I think that is positive, uh, and of course, we will continue that collaborative approach as we go through the months leading up to implementation. Mercedes Vialba. Thank you. Um, has the Scottish Government asked those conducting the gateway reviews into the deposit return scheme to interview representations of, uh, sorry, representatives of organisations who are running successful deposit returns uh, systems, and uh, especially those who have um, most recently set up their systems um, that are much cheaper for producers and have come online more quickly? First Minister. Um, I am certainly happy to uh, check the, the detail uh, to that question. Um, I'm not sure exactly uh, which individuals or organisations the member is alluding to, whether here in Scotland or in other countries that already have schemes in place. I would expect any gateway review to take uh, broad-based evidence, but in terms of uh, what particular organisations have been spoken to and, and what detail uh, has been attracted from that, um, I will uh, come back to the member with fuller detail in due course. Question number six, Paul Sweeney. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister what progress the Government has made in ending the use of hotels as temporary accommodation for children and families. First Minister. Uh, local authorities uh, have used hotels to discharge their duties as part of the emergency response to COVID. Uh, the data on this, of course, is held by local authorities uh, rather than by the Scottish Government. However, uh, our homelessness in Scotland statistics showed that although there was an increase in the number of children in temporary accommodation uh, in 2021-22, the social sector was the most common type of temporary accommodation used. 20 local authorities have reduced the number of households living in temporary accommodation uh, when compared to 2021, and 10 of these have reduced the number of children in temporary accommodation. Uh, the Housing Minister has asked an expert group for an action plan to reduce the numbers of people in temporary accommodation and the length of time spent there, with a strong focus on households with children. Sweeney. I thank the First Minister for that answer, but in response to a recent written question, her Cabinet Secretary acknowledged that hotels are unsuitable accommodation for people seeking asylum and condemned the Home Office's use of bed and breakfasts. However, I understand that lone children who may be seeking asylum and are in the care of Scottish local authorities and not the Home Office are also being placed in unregulated hotel accommodation amongst adult members of the wider homeless population and without cooking or laundry facilities. The Scottish Government condemning Home Office use of hotel accommodation means nothing if devolved care services are acting in the same manner. So can the First Minister advise what steps this working group are taking to urgently relocate these lone children to supported accommodation and can she make a commitment that no further children who are alone will be placed at risk in these unregulated hotels? First Minister. Yeah, well, I agree absolutely with uh, the, the sentiment of, of that question. If Paul Sweeney has any more information he wants to pass to us about uh, instances that he's talking about here, we, I would be very keen to, to look at that. None of us want to see uh, launch any children uh, where we can possibly avoid it in temporary hotel or bed and breakfast accommodation, but certainly not lone children in the kind of circumstances that have been uh, narrated to the Chamber. So we'll look further into that specific point. More generally, um, none of us want to see uh, hotel accommodation being used as temporary accommodation uh, 
unless that is absolutely necessary. I know I have uh, situations in my own constituency where this is an issue both for homeless people and for communities um, as, as well. Uh, but there have been uh, demands on local authorities, uh, particularly during COVID. It should be stressed, though, that most temporary accommodation is in the social sector. And as I said, many local authorities are now seeing a reduction in that. But there is much work to do here, which is why we are investing in more affordable housing, investing more in homelessness services, uh, prioritising the housing first model. Uh, so these are really important issues, and I know the uh, Housing Secretary would be happy to engage further about some of the particulars uh, behind the question. Thank you. We'll now take general and constituency supplementaries, and I call Paul McLennan. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Nearly two million UK households are behind on bill payments as Christmas approaches, according to a new survey from which as the Tory cost of living crisis runs out of control, can I ask the First Minister what support is the Scottish Government providing to people to help them stay afloat this winter? And what more could the Scottish Government be doing if it had the full powers over tax, welfare and energy pricing? First Minister. I mean, many people, as we uh, go into this uh, festive season, of course, are, are finding life more difficult than at any time uh, that most of us can remember. And I think we, we have to be very aware of that. Uh, the cost of living crisis is, is hurting very many individuals, families, businesses right across the country. Uh, the Scottish Government is doing and will continue to do everything we can to help people deal with that. Uh, as. It has been set out many times in the Chamber. We are investing around £3 billion in this year uh, on initiatives and measures that will help people with the cost of living. Uh, we have taken new initiatives, such as the Scottish Child Payment, for example. We have spoken, I have personally convened uh, summits with the energy companies and advice agencies to ensure that we are doing as much as possible. Uh, although it is true to say that many of the, the root causes of what we are dealing with right now uh, lie out with the powers uh, of this government. Uh, control, full control over the tax and the benefits system, of course, regulation of the energy sector. Uh, and if we had those powers, it is undoubtedly the case that we'd be able to do much more in a more coherent and joined up way to help people not just deal uh, with the consequences of this, but to deal Briefly, much better with the root causes too. Thank you. Liz Smith. Thank you. Uh, may I ask again if the First Minister will finally grant a full independent inquiry for the former patients of Professor El Jamel. There are now 50 former patients who have come forward, each with their own very harrowing stories. And the First Minister will be aware that several other MSPs, including Michael Mara and Willie Rennie, have uh, believe, believe, now believe that this is the only way to get to the truth and deliver justice for these former patients. First Minister. We will continue uh, to give consideration uh, to that call, absolutely understand uh, the views of those who have been uh, affected and the ordeal that they have uh, suffered. Um, the Cabinet Secretary has met uh, with the Health Board uh, leadership. The review uh, commissioned already by the Scottish Government included uh, detailed uh, reviews of care. Uh, but of course we understand uh, the desire uh, of patients to ensure uh, that any process that can uh, lead them to an assurance that they have all of the answers that they can possibly get. We understand that desire. And while we are not at this stage convinced that a public inquiry uh, would uh, lead any more to that, we will continue to give consideration uh, to these issues. Faisal Chowdhury. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, I would like to raise with the First Minister the case of a constituent who has uh, contacted me after being told that waiting list for a Yag laser capsule tomy treatment can be as long as 70 weeks. Uh, the, this constituent is going blind 
struggling to care for disabled children and having difficulty sleeping because he needs this procedure. I have already raised this matter with the Cabinet Secretary for Health, who blamed the pandemic for the waiting times. But contrary to his response, NHS Lothian have told me that these waiting times are not in effect down to the COVID, but instead down to lack of leisure available to perform the treatment. Could I, ask, could I therefore ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government is doing to ensure that NHS has the equipment it needs to tackle the waiting list and if it is acceptable that people should be told they are on a 16-month waiting list with failing eyesight for a treatment that typically takes only a few minutes. First Minister. Well, can, I, can I say two, two, two things, one, one particular and, and one more general. O, on the particular, I appreciate the member says he's already written to the Cabinet Secretary. I will look at the detail uh, of that case uh, myself, particularly if the Health Board is uh, saying that there is an issue with lack of equipment and if there is action we can uh, take there, uh, we will certainly give consideration to that. The more general point is actually a point I made earlier in response to Anna Sarwar, we are focusing on uh, reducing, in these times of significant pressure, on reducing those who have been, the times uh, of those who have been waiting longest for treatment. Uh, and that is where we are uh, seeing progress. I appreciate that is no comfort to somebody who is still waiting, but we have seen a 24% uh, reduction already in the longest waits for inpatient treatment. And uh, that is why we will continue to focus on the longest waits, uh, because uh, we know the distress that that can cause. But in the particular uh, case that has been raised, I will uh, look at the circumstances, and if there is more information I can offer, I will write to the member. Bill Kidd. Thank you very much, President Officer. Um, travellers throughout the UK are going to experience disruption over the festive period as a result of what the STC General Secretary, Ros Foyer, described as the combative approach to negotiations taken by the UK Government. Can I ask the FM what representations she has made to the UK Government to get round the table and engage constructively with trade unions to secure a railway that benefits users, staff and the wider public? First Minister. Well, I appreciate uh, Bill Kidd raising this issue. I mean, as he has said, but it is uh, important to underline this, this is not a Scottish dispute. Uh, the Scottish Government has maintained constructive discussions with trade unions and we have uh, settled pay negotiations here by embracing the concept of fair work. Uh, despite that, passengers in Scotland uh, are still facing severe disruption as a result of the ongoing UK-wide rail dispute between Network Rail, the UK Government and trade unions. Uh, Network Rail employees in Scotland uh, face entering the new year, still with no pay rise in the travelling public uh, face further disruption. So while this is not a matter in which the Scottish Government has any direct locus, unfortunately, uh, I yesterday joined with the STUC in calling for the Secretary of State to intervene immediately to avoid further disruption for users, uh, staff and taxpayers, uh, and to deliver a fair pay deal for those who work on our railways. And I hope that's something the entire Parliament can get behind. And Sue Webber. Thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister. MSPs have been sitting in this chamber after midnight for the past two days in a row. On Tuesday, as the Stage 3 gender recognition debate was underway, one woman was thrown out of the gallery and another law-abiding woman was threatened with arrest. Legislation rushed, criticism ignored and women silenced. Does the First Minister agree that events of this week have reflected badly on this Bill's passage through Parliament? First Minister. Um, I think some of the... Some of the elements of uh, our proceedings this week have reflected badly Absolutely. on the Conservative Absolutely. Party. Absolutely. Presiding officer. 
neither. I thank you. Thank you. I recognise uh, different and sincerely held views uh, on this bill. But notwithstanding that, what we saw from the Conservative Party were deliberate attempts to filibuster, yeah. to delay and to frustrate the decision-making process. Uh, neither yesterday or the day before were we timetabled to go beyond midnight or anything like it. The reason it took so long was the filibustering and uh, other actions of the Conservative Party. Uh, beyond that, Presiding Officer, as you uh, well know, I am not responsible uh, for policing the public gallery. I support uh, uh, those who do that very uh, difficult and important job, but that is not uh, for me. Uh, what I do believe is that no matter our different views on this legislation or any matter, all of us should always treat this Parliament with respect and allow it to do its work properly. And perhaps the Conservative Party might want to reflect on that over the recess. Thank you. That concludes First Minister's question.